You're listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content. We think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view. Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite, like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. Philosophers call someone a relative, by which they mean it's a person that holds that any view is as good as any other view. My simple response to that is this. No one holds that view. No one believes that every view is as good as every other view. Welcome to One Dime Radio. Today I am here with Cadell Last, who is a philosopher who's written several books, and he has a wonderful channel called Philosophy Portal, which is a hidden gem that I am very baffled that I hadn't discovered, and if it wasn't for my friends at Theory Underground for introducing me to Cadell and uh, Philosophy Portal, the channel that he runs, has a whole huge, wide variety of lectures on all sort of philosophy, but most of all, what is of interest to me and interest uh, to us today and the topic of this podcast is the ideas of Hegel. Hegel is one of those very difficult thinkers that a lot of people like to pretend they read and we've all heard of, especially people who are Marxist because he's Marx's biggest influence. Um, but when it comes to Hegel, we like to hear a couple of big words of his and easy explanations on YouTube. And we might feel very comfortable that uh, we think we know what he's talking about. But then any of us who've tried to read Phenomenology of Spirit or Science of Logic know how insanely difficult that is. I tried that a few years ago and uh, it was impenetrable for me. I'm still learning through all sort of secondary sources before I reapproach the uh, Phenomenology again. Uh, what we aim to provide today is sort of a skeleton key to some of his terminology. Hegel's probably the most difficult thing about Hegel is the fact that he has, uses a lot of words that are very difficult to understand. And sometimes when we look at explanations, people explain those ideas in terms of Hegel's own language, and that can be quite difficult uh, to understand. And so uh, we won't be able to necessarily cover all the concepts. Uh, we'll cover quite a bit as much as we can. But really, some of his key terms. But first of all, and this is a question I always ask before we get into the big ideas, is, Cadell, why Hegel? Why did you get interested in Hegel? Why should we give a shit? Because that's always the impetus, is why does this matter? Yeah, no, totally. That's a great starting question, and thanks for having me on. It was great to, to share sort of a, a podcast space with you through Theory Underground. Um, and I really enjoyed the podcast you did with Andrew Flores as well. So it's it's a really interesting little thought community that I think's forming uh, online, and and great to great to to have someone to to dive in with on these topics because, you know, a lot of the time, like you were already mentioning, when it comes to understanding Hegel, you have to really take your time. And for me, it was you know a good four or five years wrestling with the phenomenology of spirit, and a lot of that time was was by myself. <laughs> you know, just by myself with that text, wrestling with it, 
some some chapters i would i would just have to take a, like a month or two break before i got the confidence to go into the next chapter you know and and really dive into it but but to your question why hegel you know uh i'll approach this through two angles the first angle is similar to the angle that you already articulated which is that when i first encountered slavoj zizek's work as I think many people in our theoretical space, probably your first introduction to these types of ideas is through Slavoj Žižek one way or another. And mine was as well. And, and my first encounter with Slavoj Žižek was, look, this guy has a way of thinking that I, simp- I, don't, I don't know how he's thinking the way he's thinking, basically, was, was my first impression of Slavoj Žižek. And so... As a result of that, I started not only to sort of continue investigating his lectures and reading his books and stuff, but I was really became focused on what were the methodological tools that he had developed or picked up in his studies that had allowed this type of thought or who had, had opened up this form of thought. So in that roundabout way, that brings me to the second point of why. So the first point is, well, I think Zizek is, is one of the main philosophers of the moment. And I think that if we're going to seriously engage with Zizek's work as one of the main philosophers of the moment, we have to at least have a, a sort of foundational understanding of the, the thinkers that have influenced him the most, right? I mean, there's not just, of course, everyone knows Hegel and Lacan, but he also has a very interesting and unique reading of Plato, Descartes, and, 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 also, engagement, and also engagement with contemporary philosophers like Badiou which I think are uh, important for us to keep that, that sort of discourse alive and to, and to push that discourse further. But the second, re- the second reason is that what you find when you sort of investigate both sort of the Freudo-Lacanian tradition and the Hegelian tradition is that there's a specific method at work in this type of thinking, which, open, which is like a key, if we're going to use this example of a skeleton key. And so let me just juxtapose this with when I started my academic intellectual history, I was first attracted to science. And the reason I was attracted to science was because science has a method. It's a scientific method. And the scientific method allows us to understand things, learn things about the universe that we could otherwise not through principles of falsification, through empirical experimentation. And in a similar way with Hegel, there's the development of a specific philosophical method, philosophic method, the dialectical method. And so, the, and similar for the Freudo-Lacanian tradition, there's a method. There's a method of free association, which I think actually helps the Freudo-Lacanian tradition stand out among other sort of competing philosophies in the 20th century. Okay. Pardon me. Which I think in some sense, in many situations, are philosophies which lack method. So... I want to make that that point clear as well, is that in Hegel, and, 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 and perhaps this is something that I need to do a better job of in my own thought, but I, I try to do it, is that I try to shift thinking about specific figures like, for example, Hegel, Freud, Lacan, to focusing on the methods that these people are using to derive a certain knowledge, which is actually, I think, universal. So what that means is is that in the same way that the scientific method is universal, it's not unique to Galileo or it's not unique to Newton, uh, the dialectical method is universal. It's not unique to Hegel. It's not unique to Plato. 
pardon me, I've got a cough. But the, the point here is that the two main reasons we want to understand Hegel is to properly engage with the Zizekian moment of philosophy, but also philosophy more broadly. But the, the second reason is to learn the, the basic foundation of dialectical method. Yes, speaking of dialectical method, that's actually one of the first things I wanted to go into, uh, which I find to be comparatively to a lot of other Hegel's concepts to be more easier to understand just because of Todd McGowan. I've, I've listened to a lot of Todd McGowan and he's really helped break it down for me. And uh, But even though I, dialectics might be the most commonly discussed Hegelian idea or term, because uh, or his version of dialectics anyway, uh, Hegel, Hegel's dialectics is probably his most misunderstood idea um, because, of course, it's been popularized by Marx and Engels and uh, a certain version of the dialectics that people hear is the thesis, antithesis, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, um, where, which is, of course, wrong. Um, so maybe we'll just get into that first before we get into the more, what I think are the much more difficult abstract phenomenological aspects of Hegel's concepts. Uh, why is that thesis, antithesis, synthesis, understanding wrong? And what is the more correct uh, idea of under a correct way of understanding Hegel's dialectics and contradiction? Yeah, so that's a, it's a fantastic waypoint in. If you do read most standard textbooks, you are going to see this thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which I think is mostly most people I hear talking about this attributed actually comes from Fichte. When you do dive into the primary text of phenomenology of spirit or science of logic, but here just focusing primarily on primarily on phenomenology of spirit, you do see Hegel use these words sporadically. Never to my knowledge altogether or never sort of as the core of his method. But perhaps these are words that are circulating among um, German idealists at the time in general, like coming from Fichte and perhaps a few other key figures using these words. And certainly they do appear in the text of Hegel, but it's not the core of his dialectic. And that, that's crucial. And, and the core of his dialectic is, is, still, is still three terms, but it's it's it gives a different picture than this sort of two opposing terms coming together into a sort of completed, harmonious, non-problematic whole, which a, which a synthesis would, would give that picture. Basically, the motion of the dialectic follows the principles of the, of the abstract, the negative, and the concrete. And basically, what that dialectic's going through is moving through abstraction to, 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 con to concretion. It's trying to go from, from sort of abs abstract. It's in some sense, he's on the largest scale, I think. He's trying to go from abstract knowledge, which we could in, in, associate with, with pre-modern, pre-scientific knowledge, to a more concrete approach to the world, a more concrete knowledge, which makes sense in some sense that Marx comes directly after Hegel in this sort of lineage in the sense that Marx directly goes for the most concrete political economy, 
and wants to sort of get rid of all of sort of philosophy and theology as too abstract from sort of life experience and day-to-day -day world. So in, in short, the basic mechanisms at work here are the abstract, the negative, and the concrete. And if I could say one more thing about how this works dialectically is that there's a paradoxical move. There's a paradoxical move in relationship to universality and singularity here, which appears in Hegel and I think is even the crowning achievement of Hegel's philosophy, which is that Hegel actually makes mo what most people think of universality as extraordinarily abstract and as something that needs to be worked through the particular on the level of the negative to become concrete on the level of singularity, which is the appearance of something new. So basically, there's a movement in Hegel's thought from abstract universality through your own particular engagement with negation to the emergence of something new, a concrete singularity. And the way I apply that is basically thinking in terms of, in some sense, the, the birth of actual philosophers or the birth of actual subjects as the appearance of a concrete singularity. That Hegel's philosophy is distinct from the philosophies that came before it in the sense that what he's offering in the phenomenology of spirit is not just another philosophy, but ask, answering the question, how do philosophers come to be? Maybe I'll end that there. But already those, those terms, I can tell some people probably be a bit uh, confused, but uh, I think one, th one thing I found very helpful in your lectures is the way you explained, at least in phenomenology, the trajectory of from immediacy and sen like sense certainty to perception, to understanding, to consciousness, self-consciousness. Um, maybe that's a, that's a rather difficult one to simply go over, but in terms of perhaps in a, in a truly Hegelian way, we could go maybe from that general trajectory then as we get more into the concrete, we can sort of quilt it by the end when we, when we get towards it. Um, but I think maybe outlook, because you, you already kind of alluded to that with this uh, trajectory of, of, of moving from, from the abstract to the concrete, and, and that's uh, the becoming, uh, the, basically the development of reason, I guess. And uh, yeah, so how how would you explain that traject like what is Hegel's project generally with the phenomenology as a, when it comes to the trajectory slash evolution of reason? Um originally that's not what I was gonna go to right now, but that's that's directly related to what you just brought up. So I think it might be a good good segue. Right. Well yeah, but maybe but before before going directly there, maybe <clears throat> to try to clarify what I was saying about the abstract, oh, the negative, like and, the con and the concrete is that it, it, it's, it's basically like what Hegel's saying is that our thought and, and, most, and most thought in general takes the concrete for the abstract and posits sort of universal notions which don't test themselves, which don't test themselves against the reality of of, of a process of becoming. And when you test abstract universality in a process of becoming, you have to go through your own particular experience with these abstract universal concepts. You have to experience the negativity of them, the, the, the falseness of them, 
to find to find in some sense the singular truth of 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 these concepts to find the concreteness of the concept so that there's just a way in which what hegel's philosophy is doing is it it's 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 taking sort of the immediacy of your universal notions and and processing it through say a dialectical sieve to and and in some sense that 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 process for hegel is is rational in the sense that there's a positive result at the end of it even if while you're going through that process it's let's say emotionally negative but uh you wanted me to speak actually, spe- yeah sorry go ahead maybe maybe before that yes yeah, since actually before we get into that general trajectory because this is a important term right is hegel's use of negativity and also by extension his idea of negation if you'd like to elaborate on what he means by negativity and then the broader the concept of negation because that's a very very popular one of course it's uh, even used by maoists and uh the, their the, their understanding of the dialectics uh so yeah that'd be that'd be an important one i think to break down yeah i mean negation negation and negativity is you know in some in some sense you know there's there's a there's a competition i think in terms of what is the central concept in hegel's work you know negativity is certainly in competition for that for that title i think the other one being contradiction but in some sense neg- negativity or negation is is constantly at work in in hegel's thought in the sense of keeping thought moving that thought in some like and th- this this goes back to the start of the phenomenology of spirit with with the whole process in the phenomenology of spirit starts with sense certainty, immediate sense certainty, which is extremely an ab- which is an abstract universal. It's sort of like the starting condition for all human beings. And then neg- neg- negation is is kind of sort of simply realizing that that the immediacy of sense certainty is constantly changing. This is not that. It's constant. It, in some sense, you've got to you've got to constantly be negating phenomena. In order to find out the truth of phenomena, you can't remain sort of fixed on sort of the uh, a static notion. So negation is in some sense something, and negativity in general is something which Hegel's always deploying in order to keep thought moving uh, and to keep thought from uh, becoming too fixed on what ultimately I think for Hegel would be the pleasure of sense certainty. You know, becoming too fixed on something because of the pleasure you derive from the immediacy of sense certainty and and and, and like intuition right like intuition is definitely like connected we immediately to, what we sort of immediately just perceive trying to some layman's terms yeah i mean if if, if there's one if, if hegel has one enemy in the phenomenology of spirit in some sense it's the faculty of intuition and the, the way the faculty of the intuition perceives a one that is sort of uh, uh, immediately unified. So this, this immediacy of intuition is in some sense for Hegel seen as sort of like, you know, like, let me just give like a concrete example in terms of when people have sort of an immediate experience of oneness or unity with God, they say, I'm, I'm one, I'm unified with God, right? This, for in some sense, he states from the beginning of the phenomenology of spirit that this is, uh, this is a regression. This is, this is the opposite of knowledge. 
um, this immediate direct divine or this intuitive uh, comprehension of God. But you'd also say like when people just have an immediate intuition of something and they mistake it for the truth instead of using it as an orientation principle to find out what the truth of that intuition was. Right? Like in some sense, he's not saying just discard with intuition, but he's saying uh, intuition needs to be mediated by reason. Basically. And that's a perfect segue for Hegel as to why, what is reason for Hegel and how does he see its trajectory? Um, because this is what I, from what I understand so far, is sort of what uh, in his project in Phenomenology of Spirit seems to be what makes him sort of the high priest of modernism in many ways. Kind of like what I say, I say that high priest of modernism because of previously described Baudrillard as high priest of postmodernism, because uh, really he just describes the whole uh, very, very Hegelian way of putting it, the spirit of post postmodernity. And uh, with, with Hegel, it's really from what I, from what I sense is, uh, or what I, what I perceive rather is uh, like, like what, what is interesting about it is that he seems to be describing what is one of, of course, the enlightenment project is this idea of reason, but he's, um, understanding it at a much more, well, I mean, no other way to put it than phenomenological level. And so what, what is Hegel's real project and his view of the evolution of reason and its relation to his broader project in phenomenology of spirit anyway? Or you could say his, his oeuvre as a whole. Well, it's... I mean, it, it's a surprising, it's a surprisingly trick, it's a surprisingly tr tricky topic because if you if you look at the phenomenology of spirit as a, as a whole, reason kind of falls right, kind well kind kind of in the in the middle of the whole thing. You know, you have you have you basically have a series of stages. I mean, let me just back up a little bit and sort of say what is the phenomenology of spirit. The phenomenology of spirit is basically the the development or the unfolding of spirit from its earliest phase to what he thinks is the logical necessity of spirit's growth. So from, and the example he gives in the actual uh, preface is of an embryo and an adult, or a seed and a full-blown tree. And he's interested in the unfolding of the embryo to the adult, or the seed to the tree. And he's saying that the end of the the logical end of the process is contained at the beginning so sort of like the adult is contained in the embryo or the tree is contained in the seed and then each of the successive chapters of the phenomenology of spirit you have consciousness which starts with sense perception which which is sort of the immediate of immediacy of sense like you're born as an infant and there's sort of the immediacy of sense and Conscious and each of the chapters is basically structured by a triad. So you move through consciousness, you move through self-consciousness, you move through reason, you move through spirit, you move through religion, and then absolute knowing. And so what he's basically saying is an absolute knowing for Hegel is kind of the standpoint of philosophical cognition. So what he's trying what he's trying to do is to say he's not investigating what is Plato's philosophy or what is Descartes' philosophy or what is Spinoza's philosophy? He's saying, how does Plato exist? How does Descartes exist? 
How does Spinoza exist? The phenomenology of spirit is trying to, to show you a, a logical process of development uh, that, that, in some sense, demonstrates how, fig how, thinking, how thinking beings like that could exist. They're conditioned of possibility, which is very much in the spirit of post-Kantian philosophy, where Kant's basically using the transcendental a priori to ask questions about the condition of possibility of phenomena. So reason appears right in the middle of that, right in the middle of that, that process. It, it appears in between self-consciousness and spirit. And in some sense, what Hegel's always interested in is the truth of all of these phenomena. What is the truth of consciousness? What is the truth of self-consciousness? What is the truth of reason? What is the truth of spirit? And in some sense, you know, you find out what the truth of the thing is, not in terms of the synthesis of it, like we were saying about the dialectic, so not the synthesis of consciousness or the synthesis of self-consciousness or the synthesis of, of reason, but in what is, what is lacking in the previous term. So what was lacking in self-consciousness opens up the necessity of reason, or what is lacking in reason opens up the necessity of spirit. In some sense, what is lacking in self-consciousness that opens up the necessity of reason is sort of a mental schematization of nature and society. It seems to me like what, what, what Hegel's doing with reason is he's investigating how it is, what are the conditions of possibility for science to understand anything about the natural world or for science to understand anything about the nature of thought itself. That's at least how he's dealing with it in the phenomenology of spirit. Now, where reason lacks, seems to me in the phenomenology of spirit, comes to do with questions of ethics, morality, and values. That we can have sort of these mental schemas of nature, we can have these mental schemas of, of even our own thought, but no matter how well-developed our mental schemas are of nature or society, no matter how rational, the truth of all of these schemas has to be discovered in sort of their, say, ethical value, their pragmatic insight, their, their, their relationship to community, and so forth and so on. So the lack in terms of, so in the, the context of the phenomenology of spirit is, reason then opens up onto spirit. So th then you go into the, then you basically go into the, into the, into the spirit chapter from, from that perspective. Well, that's uh, another thing that was on my list actually was before reason was, I just really rub reason just because it made sense in what you were discussing at the time, but it's hard with tricky. It's very tricky with Hegel, Hegel, right? Because all his concepts are so interrelated with each other, uh, yet they kind of require understanding their individually to understand them at all together and to you have to understand them together to understand them individually it is very true that's why it's so tricky to kind of break hegel down but you just brought up spirit and i think that is one of the more one of the kind of ambiguous terms in hegel because he refers to it as of course there's the world spirit there's absolute spirit and there's also spirit in this sort of individual sense like how would you break down spirit, what that really means for Hegel? Because he uses it in very, in very different ways, right? 
Yeah. It's... Well, not very different, but different ways. No, it's true. I mean, in terms of spirit of the, you know, the spirit of world history or, or like you're saying, the absolute spirit or, or just, just the individual spirit. And again, in, in the phenomenology of spirit, we're, we're really focusing on the unfolding of the unfolding of, of, of a spirit from the most premature state or the most immature state again back to the image of an embryo up to the formation of a philosopher or an adult so we're thinking about spirit in that context in terms Not of like a spirit well yeah some people might think oh is, this sounds very hippy dippy woo woo right so some people think oh it's, does he mean spirit like at the soul but obviously he's talking about something very different right well, yeah, it, I can see. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, I think Hegel's the farthest thing away from hippy dippy woo woo in the sense of the central principle in all of Hegel's thought is is the negative. So, in some sense, he would see sort of a hit like what you'd see in the phenomenology of spirit is like, you know, a form of consciousness that looks like a hippie uh, encountering a negativity. So you you'd see the you'd see the rise of something that looks like a hippie, or you'd see the rise of something that looks like a new age spiritual mystic. You would understand how something like a hippie or a new age spiritual mystic comes to be, and then you would also see the negativity of that form of consciousness, if that makes sense. So he's less identifying with any spiritual position. And he's more trying to explicate the appearance of such forms of consciousness in certain terms of their rational becoming. Like the logic of a hippie or the logic of a new age guru and also what they lack. And so like the difference with Hegel and most sort of, well, let's say the difference, to, the difference between Hegel's dialectics and sort of someone who's strongly identifying with a certain spiritual orientation is that people with a certain spiritual orientation are not investigating what it is about their spiritual orientation which is fundamentally contradictory or will sort of encounter some fund or not taking into consideration what fundamental negativity could undermine the very nature of their identity perhaps opening it opening it up into sort of a different form of identity. But in, in, term, in terms of in terms of the spirit chapter itself, before getting into like maybe talking a little bit about world history or absolute spirit, in the in the spirit chapter itself, Hegel's mostly focused on the concrete mediation of familial life. It starts with the concrete mediation of familial life. So he's in some sense, saying that reason alone cannot really help us deal with the concrete realities of familial life. So there's a lack in reason, which opens us up onto spirit on that level. Now, just being rational doesn't help you with family life. And then through sort of the, the dialectical process in the chapter of spirit, breaks, basically brings you to the core problem for individual spirit for Hegel, which is Two spirits which view each other as wrong or two spirits precisely that view each other as evil 
uh, and the reconciliation between the two breaking up, breaking open into something beyond both of them. So something you could say like religion or the Holy Spirit. When that that that's literally spirit breaks open into religion for Hegel and the phenomenology of spirit. But that there is a a certain way in which spirit in its own individual mediation comes to see its sort of spiritual determination as right or correct or the way. Like, for example, a New Age spiritual persona and, say, a fundamentally a fundamental religious persona, seeing themselves as opposites, even seeing the other as evil, uh, and somehow beyond these individual perspectives, there's a third, some, a, a new concretion which emerges in, in sort of their mediation or their reconciliation, which Hegel brings us to in the religion chapter, as beyond sort of individual spiritual perspectives. And you could say, that beyond of the individual perspectives is sort of the movement of absolute spirit because it's a spirit beyond any individual identity. It's a spirit beyond any individual conception. Absolute spirit is kind of like the war or the conflict or the antagonism or the tension between all individual spirits. So at a narrower sense... Could we describe the the spirit sort of like the way I, the way I understood it? And at the first, at the very in the narrow sense, as spirit sort of more vaguely, the the human mind and its and it's aimed to encapsulate the human mind and its products, and the sort of nor the, I guess you could say constellation of normativity that uh, of of sort of customs, laws, and all these things that characterize our, our normative world, like all these sort of subjective aspects and it's, it's like the uniquely human aspect i guess of the world uh the, the way i understand it and then then from there you have like spirit at the like group spirit like and define a group right of people and then sort of the historical spirit and then absolute spirit i have very trouble really understanding but isn't that more what's meant to like cover art religion and philosophy as opposed to wars or like key big events so the, the so absolute spirit is definitely the the if you were going to define absolute spirit as a triad art religion and philosophy is how hegel defines it what i was saying about the war of absolute spirit is like the war of different artistic movements or the war of different religious movements or the war of different philosophical perspectives like meaning mm -hmm. the absolute spirit is constantly in a conflict with itself Meaning, absolute spirit isn't, in, again, a harmonious oneness. Absolute spirit is, is in a contradiction with itself. Like, for example, Israel-Palestine. For example, I mean, that, that's absolute spirit. It, it, it's just this, this brutal negativity and contradiction that, that the whole world looks at. A, a, and there's no rational solution. There's, the truth of the situation is just this horrendous negativity. Right. And 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 so what I mean by absolute spirit at war is like, for example, and Hegel's like really I like to bring this back. Hegel is a philosopher of history. Mm -hmm. In the sense that. When Hegel's interested in when he when Hegel's describing absolute spirit on the level of religion, philosophy, art. 
thinking about like the Hundred Years' War or, or the Crusades or conflict between Hindus and Muslims or, or Jews and, and Christians, and, right? He's or talk, the French Revolution, or, right? Or the French Revolution, that's, and that's what one. inspired him. I mean, didn't he have a very big fascination with Napoleon for a certain reason? Like, if I'm understanding correctly, like Napoleon sort of embodying, because from what I understood, the world spirit can sort of be embodied in particular individuals, right? And sort of he thought it was embodied in Napoleon uh, at the at his time. Absolutely. So, like, so this this is a good example where we can bring this back to the dialectics of the the abstract, the negative, and the concrete with universality, particularity, and singularity is that the universal becomes embodied through a singularity. What that means is, and that's the paradox of Hegel's thought, the example of Napoleon sort of explicates it well, in the sense that sort of a universal political movement is embodied in this singular concrete being, Napoleon, who I see on horseback in front of me. It's like the universals through the particular. Like I, I always use scientific examples to describe it like, like Einstein coming up with the general theory of relativity or Darwin coming up with the theory of natural selection. General relativity and natural selection are universal, but they're embodied in a singularity, Darwin or Einstein. So in the same way, he's thinking about this politically with figures like Napoleon. Is to a certain degree, degree also that Napoleon is shaping the world spirit or that he just, it's embodied it? Is, is that more what it is? Because what I found very interesting is in, in his book, What is Power? Byung Chul Han has this sort of Hegelian, he reads, he extracts a sort of Hegelian theory of power and he ties it directly to spirit. And that's kind of something I found very fascinating. This idea to, the, the way he ex, explained it is being itself being oneself within the other is is like absolute power is power uh in this hegelian sense in the sense like could we look at spirit at a individual level and its effect around surroundings and, and other people groups and in history as this sort of ability to be in the world but and shape it more in one's image than be shaped by it that might be a correct way of putting it but uh sort of a way i understand it because we think we always say uh creating this expression of power right creating the world in one's image and god created in one's image and this idea that humans become divine godlike by creating the world in their image and uh couldn't help but it's it's, but be fascinated as to learn more about the way hegel sees spirit and how it ties into all this no, it's 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 a fantastic connection. So in regards to you know shaping as opposed to being shaped by I mean the whole thing with Hegel and the absolute on the level of absolute spirit is that you could say god like you could say god is fully historical. God is fully historical or the absolute is fully historical. It's kind of like the unity between the absolute and 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 historicism. So it's not, and I hope maybe we can get to this later, but I think it's really important is it's not history without the absolute. 
And it's not the absolute without history. It's the unity of the absolute and history. That the absolute manifests itself through singularities, like like a Napoleon, like and and like in the in terms of shaping it one own, one's one one's own image, Napoleon did shape the world in 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 his own image, right? Like in in, in some sense, and 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 all all of all of the greatest figures throughout history in some sense, played their part in, in shaping the absolute spirit. I mean, absolute spirit is, in some sense, our action. But in terms of like, you know, this, you know, I'm not sure if I'm stepping outside of my area of expertise with this, but in terms of, you know, God creating humans in their, you know, the, the traditional notion that God created humans in, in his image, and then humans sort of becoming godlike, I mean, this is sort of a, a standard reading of the relationship between traditional theology and Hegel. It's in, 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 su in some sense, you know, not just humans are fallen, but God is also fallen. Is the idea that, for example, Zizek will always, Zizek will always play with as well, is, like, is, is this idea that it, it's not just that, that humans are fallen from some absolute perfection, but this absolute perfection is also fallen and sort of in the world struggling with its own sort of divine mediation or, or absolute spirit on the level of, of historical mediation. Not sure if that, that makes total sense, but, but it's sort of very complex concept. Yes. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it might be, this, this might be a bit of a big departure from what we were saying before, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get back to the trajectory of reason, but I mean, just right there, I mean, it brings up a very fascinating question as to what is God for Hegel? Because from what I gather, it's, it's drastically different from the likes of the pantheistic notion of God that you see in Spinoza, sort of God is imminent, is everywhere. With, with Hegel, he has a more human kind of, maybe a super modernist kind of idea of, of God from what I get. How, do, how does Hegel see God? And like this concept of it. and it's. Again, it's for, big idea for 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 for, he, for Hegel. There's no, there's no, there's no perfect absolute reference point outside of history. And also, so I mean, God, God, but at the same time, God is not. Hegel's certainly not a Spinozist, but at the same time, it, it's it's so hard to language these things. But Hegel, in some sense, uses Spinoza's system. Of let's say nature is uh, God is nature, or God is substance. But the crucial thing is that the be the best I think the best phrase to to capture it is Hegel says the absolute is substance, but also subject. So the idea of the absolute is substance, but also subject is he's saying that Spinoza's God lacks a subject. That Spinoza's God just has substance, and it becomes sort of an abyssal substance, but it lacks sort of the the mediation through singularity of the subject. And so, in some sense, you know, the the I mean, the, one of the easiest ways to describe it probably is kind of I mean, I think this is why Zizek often does sort of rely on on Christian atheist terms of terminology is that in Christianity, God becomes man and dies on a cross. 
So when I say the absolute is substance, but also subject, it's sort of like saying God is nature, but also man. And then man sort of confronts his own contradiction of identity or his own internal lack. And so if you, if you miss that substance becoming subject, you sort of get stuck with this idea of like God as just nature out there or God as this sort of spirit moving everywhere out there. But you don't sort of see the mediation through singularity or through, through, through your own subjectivity. And is that in a way spirit? kind of what is shaping and mediation, the sort of characterizing the maybe a better way, way to say it is sort of the spirit sort of encapsulating what is mediating humans and their relation with the world. That spirit is that, I guess, part of that world, that subject that is the part of part of history as opposed to this idea of God being out there or up here, like a transcendentalist view, it's more. Yeah, I mean, is, is yeah. Because I, I get this idea that when, when he, in the evolution of reason with this idea of absolute knowing, which I want to save to the end because I find obvious for obvious reasons, I mean, very, it's very difficult, sort of seems to be the culmination of his, his project trajectory of reason. In absolute knowing, it seems like that is sort of almost a sort of godlike state in, in many ways, right? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's again where the, the distinction between man and God itself gets fuzzy. The distinction between man and God, because it you know the way I interpret, because I mean he you can look it up yourself at the very end of the phenomenology of spirit. Hegel ends the phenomenology of spirit, but with with these poetic passages about God, where he basically describes sort of God at the end of the phenomenological process. And the way I think about it is kind of like God is, and in Enter the Alien, which is a an anthology that was published through Philosophy Portal. The way I describe God in the chapter of absolute knowing is kind of like the whole of the human species in sort of, and, and what I mean by the whole of the human species, the whole of the human spirit, the whole of its history, and its sort of internal antagonisms and contradictions with itself. And like the whole of that is God. Whereas you and I, like, Cadell and, and Tony and whoever else, we're sort of we can like we are we are a singularity within that, but we're not the whole we're not the whole absolute spirit, right? Like I like that that's the the problem of the in some sense the problem of the beautiful soul, which appears in the the chapter on 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 re, believe it's reason, is that the beautiful soul in some sense projects itself out on the whole of external history and thinks that its reason can resolve, you know, I don't know, Palestine and Israel. Like, it, in some sense, it, it thinks its judgment is God. But in some sense, from the perspective of absolute knowing, you kind of, you have to reconcile yourself with that there's a contradiction, there's antagonisms that are a part of absolute spirit that you're impotent to do anything about. If that makes so there is I want to make a distinction basically between absolute knowing and God, 
But at the same time, absolute knowing is sort of like the final standpoint or or the standpoint within which an individual spirit can can know God. Interesting. Yeah, and this is something I kind of want to bring back to the spirit because there's a part where Byung Chul Han talks about spirit and, and he kind of quotes Hegel, uh, something along the lines of, it takes over both cognitively and practically what is other than itself, nature as well as lower levels of spirit, and realizes itself in them. In that sense, because of course you're saying the in the the way we often hear about Hegel and his view of history is that there's a sort of inevitability to things, and that humans have it's easy to think with that view that we have no agency. But what I gather from his theory of Geist spirit is that you know certain individuals, groups of individuals, have an ability to shape the world spirit significantly more. Uh, than others, and that can add a huge layer of indeterminacy, I guess, to history. Would, would, does that make sense, or is that does Byung Chul Han's uh, re- reading of that make any sense? Or because I, f- I think that I find that a fascinating just way of viewing power and change. Because I, I'm always tr- fascinated by theories that kind of have a way of having a layer of human agency. How, do, how can humans shape history? And uh, that's why I've been interested in Badiou uh, lately. But yeah, I don't know if you'd like to elaborate on that when it comes to spirit and the shaping of history and spirit, what, what characterizes different degrees of... It's really hard to put in words, to just different degrees of spirit and shaping other people, the history events and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, these are very difficult topics. Mm-hmm. In term, in terms of, there is this, there is this sense of of Hegel as having this sort of necessity, the, the you know, in this in the sense of absolute knowing being the necessity. But the paradox of absolute knowing being the necessity is that absolute knowing opens you up into a radical indeterminacy. <clears throat> It's and also the state of absolute knowing opens you up into a state of a recognition that you can't predict or control the future. Like you can't jump ahead of yourself and know how your own actions will change history. So like it's the paradox is is that we can change history. Like like we can act and change the course of world history. But we can't know in advance how our actions will change history. Does that make sense? Like, like we can't right. change. We history. only know retroactively. We only know right? retroactively. Yeah, we only know retroactively. Mm. We can't jump. Like, for, let me give it. Let me give. Like, we can. We can control the determinacy of our concept. So let me give an example of that. Is in built like the, the I'll use. The, I always like using personal examples. In building, in building philosophy portal. I know, or I knew that I was going to build a new philosophical ecology online, right? And I could determine that concept. But I couldn't know the consequences of that action. 
I couldn't know who I would influence. I couldn't know that Tony from One Dime would reach out to me and, and, and want to have a conversation about Hegel. I couldn't know that in advance, right? But in some sense, I am expressing my particular singular human agency in determining that concept, even if the world spirit or the absolute spirit is, is ultimately out of my predictive control, right? So to put that in maybe terms that would translate into what you're doing is, I mean, you're building, a, you're building your own podcast, you're building your own media, media presence, and you can determine that concept yourself. You're in, you're, that's your determinate concept. But the way in which that determinate concept shapes world history or, or absolute spirit, that's not really in your control. And, and you're going to have to mm. respond to many unpredictable, chaotic, you know, appearances. And there's all these other manifestations of spirit, right? That are also sort of competing for this right. influence on that world spirit. So let me let me give an example of what I was talking about in Enter the Alien. Is you know the the and try to <laughs> articulate this relationship that I think between absolute knowing and God. There are four major properties of God: omnipotence, omnibenevolence, uh, omnipresence, and omniscience. They're sort of like the scene is the nature of God, these omni properties. The way I think about it is that God is the actual power conflicts or contradictions between the impossibilities of all of these terms, right? The impossibility of omniscience, the impossibility of omnipresence, the impossibility of omnibenevolence, all of these things, actual in world history, is is God, sure. right? And that's what I mean by it's not only humans are fallen, but God is fallen, right? And, and necessarily so. Like, he, he can't live up to his own impossibility, right? Of omniscience, of om omnibenevolence. You know, so, so when, for example, a particular human thinks, like, for example, when a particular human thinks that they've discovered a theory of everything, they think they're omniscient. But this is just God being deceived by himself. Or well, this is just God deceiving himself in one singular being, right? Like one guy who thinks he's omniscient in the world. Right? And in some sense, other, other spirits in absolute spirit will critique him, negate him, rip his theory apart, prove him wrong or something like that. And it's the conflict of omniscience itself. The fact that nobody knows everything. Which is the becoming of God. And so in some sense, the absolute knowledge in this situation is recognizing your own limit that I don't know everything actually, and I cannot know everything, right? Like, the, so that's absolute knowing paradox. And absolute knowing has no positive content. Absolute knowing is just the recognition that you don't know everything, right? Like there's a, a joke that Zizek uses in Less Than Nothing, which I think demonstrates it well, where he says, there's these two, two figures in the joke. One says, I have absolute knowledge. The other figure says, you can't have absolute knowledge, that's impossible. He's like, but that is absolute knowledge. <laughs> right, so that's interesting. That, I mean, that, that isn't that reminds me of the Socrates quote, right? The man who knows he knows nothing, or yes, exactly. Along those so, lines. so let me give a little example. So, that's example of Socrates, of the man who knows nothing. And what I'm saying about the phenomenology of spirit is that phenomenology of spirit is a journey 
of not Socrates' philosophy, but how Socrates exists. Right? It's phenomenology of spirit is trying to explicate how a philosopher can exist. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what I so I'm I'm tempted to almost like go into that Christian atheism direction just because you alluded to it, and uh, also wanted to talk about the the historical component and why so many people seem to interpret Hegel very in vastly different ways. I mean, he's interpreted he's he's used by Woodrow Wilson uh, in a in a way that absolutely fascinated me when I was reading about that, and Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama, of course, Marx, of course. Uh, Kojev, Zizek, all sort of different people. Um, I'm tempted to go in that direction, but since we're on the we're on the we're on the a, on the alien stuff right now, the the abstract stuff. I think this idea of Christian atheism is very interesting because I was first exposed to it through Zizek, and Zizek kind of says that like Hegel is really the first person to kind of have this sort of idea of Christian atheism. And I mean, what does that mean? Because some people who heard that term in this conversation will say, "What?" That's, that's an oxymoron because yeah. it's, a, it's a crazy idea when you think about it. I mean, I, I always, I mean, before I encountered Hegel and Zizek, I had a separate notion of Christianity and atheism. And I, I was an atheist. So when I encountered Christian atheism, I, I had that response. I was like, what? Right. And it, it took me a while to get it, but I actually love it. What it's, what it's basically saying is, so again, if we take the structure of the phenomenology of spirit going from consciousness up to absolute knowing, the final chapter before absolute knowing is religion. And what you discover in the religion chapter, the basically, to understand fully Hegel's theory of Christian atheism, you have to understand the religious chapter and the chapter on absolute knowing and the difference between the two. And that will give you the key to Christian atheism. What he's basically saying is, is that religion is a necessary transcendental illusion in the becoming of a philosopher. In other words, you have to pass through the illusion of religion in order to really understand the truth of, in, in order to understand really the truth of cognition or the truth of thought. Right? And, and, and you can't sort of you can't sort of get around it through different, let's say, oppressive mechanisms. Like you could argue that the new atheists are just repressing religion, right? When they say the new atheists will just say, oh, religion is just a system of control of the people. We can easily just live without it. Or, you know, you could have a sort of psychotic foreclosure of religion and sort of say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or I don't need religion to have my relationship to God, right? Right, or you could have that a. Is, I find that fascinating, actually. Yeah, that is such. That is, uh, that's. I think that what characterizes religion today in many ways is the average person I meet tends to say, like, "I'm spiritual. I'm not religious." But yeah, so I would say, I and I would, I would say that a lot of our society is psychotic. I would say that's a psychotic response. Where and then there's the final one would be sort of a perverted. We response. don't mean that pejoratively. You mean that in a Lacanian sense, right? Yeah. So like I, I'm basically applying Lacanian categories to this. So like you have the neurotic repression, the psychotic foreclosure, and then the fetishistic disavowal. Would be like applying three clinical structures to these ideas. So like the perverted fetishistic disavowal would be like, 
I know religion is bullshit, but nonetheless, I'll sort of LARP as a Christian. <laughs> like that, and this is something that some people are doing now today. You know, but so, but in in some sense, what what Hegel's saying? No, in the actual unfolding of spirit, you relate, you actually encounter a negativity in spirit. Which, it, whatever I told you at the end of the spirit chapter, it's basically like two hard hearts, like one heart who thinks the other heart is evil, the other heart who thinks the other heart is evil. They both think each other are evil. And it's the breaking of the two hard hearts which opens up into religion. Right? So, like, I mean, you can, like, I think about this concretely in my life, like, with, like, someone intimately, your mother, your brother, you know, someone you love, a girlfriend, boyfriend, you think they're evil. They did something evil that broke your heart. And they think you're evil, right? For and it's the breaking of these two hard hearts which opens up into religion in, in the phenomenology of spirit. So what Hegel's saying is, is you have to actually go through that concrete experience to really know the truth of religion. But then religion is a, is a whole other section. And religion has its own lack, which you have to discover. In, and, so, and, and so in the end of religion chapter, you know, basically you have, like in the religion chapter, you'll experience basically, you know, you'll go through animism, you'll go through like what, what we might call panpsychism, you'll go through different forms of religion. You go through the singular universality of, of something like a Jesus figure, like the historical realization of singular universality. You'll experience the community forming around this singular universality, which is kind of like the, the Holy Spirit. And, but then, this is the crucial thing, the community itself lacks. So a community forms around a singular universality, and this does not have to be, like, this could be Jesus, like Christians forming around Jesus who died on the cross, but it, 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 it's more general than that. Like, it could be, for example, the way, you know, like Zizek used examples of, like, the way communists organize around figures like Che Guevara, Right? So the crucial yeah. thing he died for he died for our sins, right? <laughs> In many ways, he is like the Jesus figure for Cuba, even though it's there's a, funny a, a memes about country. this. There's yeah. there's yeah, and there's yeah. funny memes about leftists today who are like trying who like there's funny memes I saw today of of, of you know the guy who's checking out the girl while he's walking it with his hands with his girlfriend? Mm -hmm. Where it's like showing yeah, yeah, leftists looking at like an Islamic fundamentalist. While he's holding hands with right. Che Guevara, yeah. So like, I don't know that meme, but it makes sense. Yeah. Well, this is actually this is a subject of, of massive interest of mine. Actually, this this idea of uh, the the different sort of separation between um, uh, politics and philosophy and rhetoric and propaganda and descriptive knowledge, because I think I think it's it's a huge problem within the field of Marxism. Because in the field of Marxism, you sometimes have this sort of assumption that the theory itself, which tries to be a politics and a descriptive theory, is also a theory that claims to be based in material reality, but it's also intertwined with a politics, which I believe I, I, I believe politics is very much 
very hard to separate from religion. I think that, like politics and religion are, are in tandem, and some of the biggest religion religious events in the world are political, and some of the biggest political events are highly religious. And it's this sort of uh, denial of religion in left spaces that I think can lead to sort of, as, as you were describing, a sort of foreclosure of that. It kind of leads to sort of psychotic delusion because what I found fascinating is when I was looking at the history of Stalinism and really finding out from the historians like J.R. Getty, which look at what he believed, that Stalin really believed his own propaganda. Like he really fully believed he was saving, he was determining, uh, he was doing, he was on the right side of the inevitable historical development towards communism and that he just had to kick out all the revisionists. And, but at all, they're saying, you know, like we're scientific, we're not religious, we're above that, but it's totally a religious aspect. I mean, maybe to tie that back is, I mean, in, in, in the, from a Hegelian standpoint, how, are, are we really, can we really even really escape religion? And I mean, I think the answer is yes and no. Wouldn't it? Yeah, it's the trickiest and the most important. And I think you're nailing it, like in terms of like the things you're thinking about. Like, so like the way the way I the way I taught it in the phenomenology of spirit class is again, you take the phenomenology of spirit, whatever you have the different stages, and yeah, I understand it like a fractal. Like I kind of understand it like a fractal, like that. You can't deconstruct it in the sense that every newborn spirit has to move through all these phases on their own. Right? Consciousness, self-consciousness, reason, spirit, religion, absolute knowing. In some sense, there's an internal logic which is unfolding. Now, what leftists have done, and to me this is going to become more and more of like the crucial like crux of like the whole Hegel philosophy debate is what leftists have done, and this is inspired by Marx, is that they replace the religious layer with communism. Right? So you just get rid of, you get rid of Christianity and you say, well, communism is going to do that. Right? And so the political theology becomes political economy. Right? This is a heat. Now, so now back to Hegel's philosophy being a philosophy of contradiction and negativity. This is a huge contradiction and negativity that we have to work with and wrestle with in our thought. I don't know what the final answer is. To me, there's not a final answer to it. It's to me, it's something that we're actively seeing on display in actual political mo- movements today. And the, right. the meme I was sh- telling you about, about the, the leftist who's looking at the religious fundamentalist while holding hands with Che Guevara just, cap- just captures that, that contradiction. But basically, the, the 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 stake is: can you fully can you fully materialize the 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 Christian or the religious layer? And and right right leaning Hegelians say no, and left leaning Hegelians say yes, and they don't talk to each other. Right, so this is this is a split. This this is something that I, I found interesting is that Todd McGowan, right, who who's been a sort of window to learning about dialectics for me, is he was talking about how with one problem with Marxism is that they they often presume a sort of end of politics, 
and there's an end of history in which there is an overcoming of contradiction, which sort of misunderstands the very fact that you can't really overcome contradiction, more so work through contradiction. And what I find interesting, though, is that it, that seems to be, though, the way that people understand Hegel himself, that isn't there this common culmination that you overcome contradiction? Because I see that in Fukuyama as well, with Fukuyama kind of saying, like, you know, there's, there's well, he does pause at the end of history with a question mark uh, in, in his article. He's uncertain about it, but still this very idea that, you know, you could overcome these contradictions and these uh, battle between communism and in uh, liberal democracy and have this idea where you have a final stage. I mean, wouldn't that be sort of, isn't that interpretation of Hegel very at odds with the idea of Hegel as this contradictory thinker in which contradiction is? Yeah, to, to me, to me, like I've taught fully, done full courses on the phenomenology of spirit and science of logic to sort of investigate this myself. To me, at the end of the phenomenology of spirit, what you have is spirit in a process of individuation becoming other to itself, becoming other to its identity. At the end of the science of logic, what I find is not the overcoming of contradiction, but the positivizing of contradiction. In other words, contradiction goes from being seen as negative, like my identity is a contradiction, to being seen as positive. My identity is a contradiction. And what opens up there is a different perspective shift on working with contradiction. So, for example, right now, I experience a performative contradiction in talking about Hegel. Now, that's not even, now, that's something that you could experience as negative, but I experience it as positive in the sense that it has to give me ideas for the future of my becoming other in terms of the becoming other of my identity. In terms of political economy, religion, and so forth, I'm not looking... To me, it's ridiculous to think that we're ever going to be in a state free of contradiction. It's ridiculous to think that we're ever going to be in a state where the absolute spirit is not in conflict with itself. To me, the, where, and like, to think like Hegel is to, instead of, for example, like, in, instead of thinking that one side, it's not that you don't take sides, and so, that you can't take sides, but to think that your side is non-problematic and leading to a state without contradiction. That's the mistake, right? It's not that you can't take a side. In some sense, you have to take a side, some, like you can take a side working through something dialectically, but your side is still problematic. It's not perfect. And it's not leading to a state free of contradiction or conflict. Right. There's going to be new. And even if your side. So-called wins, it will win in changing its identity and it will open up a new state of affairs, which will open up new contradictions, which you can't foresee right now. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think. In that's how I think in Hegelians. And I think whether or not Marx thought this or that, I think that Marxists who think in terms of a utopian conception is a mistake. It's it's a teleological, it's 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 precisely throwing out the owl of Minerva that you can't jump ahead of yourself and see the end of history and think that you're the 
and think you are the actor of history who is going to realize the utopia. That's a silly idea. Right. Well, and of course, Marx himself was, was very skeptical of the idea of utopianism. And, but you do have this debate within Hegelian Marxists that I hear some say, you know, Marx, this, I, this interpretation, this uh, type of Marxism we're, des we're describing uh, with this idea positing an end of contradiction is more Marxist after Marx. And some say it leads, it's from Marx himself. Some say it's Engels who kind of does it more than Marx. That is, I find actually very convincing because in Engels, you do very get a sort of, uh, if, uh, if those who've read Anti During, who uh, he has this very, I almost seems like a really like a religious type of view of history and, and that this overcoming of contradiction that will lead to this eventual culmination that is communism. Um, but whereas where I got it, got the impression from Marx is that communism is just a new stage of new contradictions. That's it's overcoming of the class contradictions, but you have all these new yeah. other contradictions right and, after. And Zizek even, so on two things, Zizek's philosophy is important because it puts contradiction at the heart of reality itself with quantum physics. He says, look, we found out on the fundamental level of reality, reality itself is a contradiction. You know, wave particle duality and stuff like this. Is that in Less Than Nothing that he talks about that? Yeah, among other places, but there is a chapter in Less Than I'm, Nothing. I've is... been doing a For They Know Not What They Do, and I haven't encountered any quantum physics yet. <laughs> so I was wondering no, if No, there's that a full chapter in Less Than Nothing on quantum physics. But, but in regards to your point, regards to, to Marx and Engels, and, well, and specifically Marx and the overcoming of class conflict to a new type of con con contradiction, I think that's how we should think about communism is communism should be, we should think about what contradictions will we experience in communism? And I, I think that that's where we'll really require Frodo-Lacanianism. Because with Frodo-Lacanianism, that's where you need libidinal economy. And you need to understand sexual difference, contradiction of sexual difference. And I know there's some weird, lect like obscure lectures where Zizek did, where he said like, the real negativity of communism will be things like envy and jealousy. You know, like it'll be a social nightmare. Well, and that's fascinating you bring that up because that's my next video is about the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And that's one of the real interesting paradoxes is it's cat catastrophe is not so much characterized by a one man totalitarian project, but these sort of contradictions between the masses themselves can't almost cannibalizing, self-destructing, and purging each other. Like most of the, what was weird is it was a time of actually unprecedented free speech for China's, for China's standards. And you had the policing of each other almost in what, uh, in, a, in a way that was all too human. And I mean, that just brings up a whole fascinating, so in other words, you're sort of saying that the, like the contradictions that are dealing with, with overcoming, like let's, in the event of a class has to do with all these other human contradictions and, and stuff like that and it'll be a mess you're tearing with the negative just on another level no, the negativity is the negativity and the contradiction is at the heart of our being mm -hmm. it's not it's not just like it's not okay when we it's not it's not like okay there's bourgeoisie and the proletariat and there's a class conflict and when we overcome this class yeah we conflict, have it here already then we'll be then we'll be then we'll be like able to be like really human you know like we'll be able to be socially positive like like a positive notion of humans and we'll, then we'll just get along the only <laughs> thing that, that that's keeping us apart is the class conflict or the state right or the if you're state an anarchist, uh, or some power structures mm -hmm. no 
when 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 we're in communism, it's gonna be it, just all you have to know is like family life, romantic life, uh, uh, comparison with others, with who has like for for Christ's sake, social media is a fucking social nightmare, right? Like, it's a, you just take all of that and you just throw mm -hmm. it in, and and so no, it there'll be there is emancipatory possibilities. And in some sense, we can, I think we can fail better. Um, right. And we can, and we can have a, like, to me, here's the, here's Hegel's progress. Hegel's progress is the deepening of contradiction, meaning you don't resolve all contradictions. It's that you experience contradictions that didn't exist before. Right. So communism will mm. be a deepening of contradiction in the sense that we'll be experiencing contradictions that we don't currently experience. Right. Um, yeah, that's the way I, that's the way I've understood Marx already, like in 1844 manuscripts. Right. Because, you know, we will actually have time to think because we live so much and it was through the division of labor. We're pretty much. A lot of our human faculties are just blocked off, limited, stultified and. Really, it's that that's sort of part of the project is because we say, oh, why why is communism even good? I mean, it's a it's a real question. I think he posits an answer there, uh, his version, which is sort of the the freedom and why is freedom good? Right, is this emancipation of faculties, and then why is that good? I mean, maybe it, would a Hegelian answer potentially be, well, the deepening of other contradictions that might further our and might further history. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good train of thought that you're you're thinking on. Why is the emancipator? Why why is the emancipation of our, our our faculties good? And then you can keep questioning that. To me, ultimately, what Zizek says is we have to reconcile with an excessive negativity, and the excess of our own self. Right, and 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 really, really, where where the the new yes, it'll be a deepening of contradictions. But what specifically will be the deepening of contradiction? I would say would be the excess of of what we are, like our own our own sort of libidinal excess. You know, will will be the source of the the deeper contradiction. Because think about how many, and this is sort of like why I think the concept of the rabble is so important, as opposed to the concept of the proletariat, is like. So much of human cognition and so much of human being is caught up in menial, basically, just what will probably be seen in the future as slave labor, wage labor, <laughs> you know, trivial, trivial. So, but so much of our excess is bound up in that, right? And, and if that is sort of emancipated and that's unbound, I mean, you know, who, who, who knows what, who knows? I mean, Ultimately, the highest conception of it would be, hopefully, there's new artistic, uh, philosophical, and spiritual movements that, that, that we use this excess in that direction, or maybe even in other ways. With, uh, with, when you brought up, because we're talking about Zizek a lot, and I think this is important, because with, you have all these different strains of Hegelianism, many different ways Hegel has been read, and of course, Zizek arguably from, from what, I, what I gather is what makes his project unique and at the core of his project is sort of saying you can't really understand Hegel without understanding Lacan. You can't really understand Lacan without understanding Hegel. And because you, you brought up uh, Lacan, Lacanian terms in this conversation and some people who, who 
aren't familiar will be okay well what how is this related and i mean yeah that is that it begs a really interesting question i mean what why is psychoanalysis important to understanding hegel um because that's sort of what Zizek makes Zizek's whole, defines his project in many ways it does it does define it if it doesn't describe his project it it defines his unique contribution to philosophy it defines the the unique contribution to philosophy is the way he connects Hegel and Lacan and 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 interprets them sort of not just in a linear way. It's not just that the Frodo Lacanian tradition corrects or adds to Hegel, but also Hegel can add to the Frodo Lacanian tradition as well. right So there's this sort of mutual interpenetrability or inseparability of idealism and psychoanalysis there. And I think what's so important is on the on the direction of moving from Hegel to psychoanalysis, in some sense we see the material paradigm or the material institution of Hegelian philosophy and psychoanalysis. In the sense that what they're interested in is the movement of in Hegel in Hegelian terms, psychoanalysis is interested in the movement of the concept or the movement of the signifier. And so, like, you would literally have a practical institutional space in the 20th century where the investigation of free speech, the investigation of the free signifier, is, has, a, has sort of a, a paradigm. The other way where Freudo-Lacanianism can add to Hegel is that I think you go... <clears throat> you basically just get much more material to work with. Whereas sort of Hegel is one philosopher sort of explicating the pathway or the development of spirit. Sort of sort of trying to explicate the logic of the coming to be of, of absolute knowing. With psychoanalysis, you have so many case reports and and, and actual sort of, you know, clinical examples of people's movement through these different phases or different stages. Their own wrestling with sort of the, the material embodiment of, of, their own wrestling with the concrete notion. So this is a very fruitful pathway and, and certainly, certainly Zizek's philosophy is, is unique in, or you, Zizek's contribution to philosophy is here really unique because in some sense, philosophy sees psychoanalysis as separate from it. Base desires. And psychoanalysis sees philosophy as too abstract, disconnected, disembodied, too heady. Too disconnected from the personal. So at least where I go with it in my own work is I see idealism and psychoanalysis as a way to personalize the universal. And what that means is just so, your life, your investigating your life history, not just simply navel gazing. That your the becoming of your own signifier, the becoming of your own concept is itself a, a philosophical project. Right. And this is what I wanted to ask is the sort of connection between the Lacanian idea of the split subject, or well, it's 
psychoanalytic idea, because of course it comes from Freud, the split subject and uh, the Hegel's idea of being in itself. Uh, because I was been reading uh, "For They Know Not What They Do" by Zizek, and this sort of idea that you know the subject isn't what they are; they're a sort of an internal contradiction. And I guess, yeah, that might be an interesting thing to elaborate because being in itself seems to be a hard Hegelian idea to even wrap one's head around, but perhaps relating it to the Lacanian idea of the split subject might elucidate that. Just in terms of starting, starting with the subject isn't what they are, the subject is an internal, internal contradiction. I think the best way to do that is to talk about how the subject of the statement is eccentric to the locus of the subject of the unconscious. So, for example, the subject of the statement, I'm literally making statements right now. Like, you ask me a question, I respond with a statement. And those statements and the locus of the subject of the unconscious are not the same thing. Me right now performing on a podcast, I'm sort of decentered from like just bringing up the, the subject of the unconscious. Right? And, and necess necessarily so. There's just a difference between people who know they're split and people who don't know they're split. Right? If a subject doesn't know they're split, they think the subject of the statement is them. And that's dangerous. Right? Mm. And the subject who knows they're split, there's a way, there's a different way they move with statements. There's a different way they move with propositions or propositional knowledge. Because they, they're not identifying with that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Or is that, is that, is that one window into this? Mm. Could we relate that to ideology? Because doesn't ideology try isn't ideology is one of its purposes is to sort of obfuscate this very contradiction because you see with, for example, when people are debating political ideas and they identify with those ideas, they tend to be extremely offended at a sort of ob uh, objection to those ideas as if it was an objection to them. Please. I have this old video that I, I kind of, I, I have mixed opinions on just because I'm presenting Fisher's idea of acid communism and, it's a lot of just hypotheses there, not not it's very tentative. But in that, I, I mentioned, you know, one thing like, regardless of the literal psychedelics, but one psychedelia idea that is perhaps fruitful is this idea of not of so, for realizing that your sort of self is a is a spook, for lack of a better term, and not to identify your politics with your identity, um, because. The problem with that is when you have, you have, I think it worsens sectarianism when you have a lot of really, some sectarianism is meaningful contradictions and some of it is uh, like meaningful differences and some of it is just often people who identify with their ideas and what they enunci enunciate in their discussions. They, of course, you know, they can't really think, you know, it's why you end up talking past each other. It's like it's like almost like a lower lower level of consciousness to put it very derogatorily, but uh, yeah, that, that's so that, you, you really see that. I don't know if it came through, but that's what I was trying to articulate between the subject of the statement versus the subject of the unconscious. Is 
people who identify with their own statements, people who identify with their own ideas. And there's a difference between people who know they're split and people who don't know they're split. If that makes sense. So, so like, like, for example, like in the example you gave of someone who's extremely offended if you attack their statements or like if someone who, if, if, if someone was attacking me because of statements I had said about Hegel. Right. Like if I was to get really offended by that, it would be an example of me in some sense putting too much of my identity in those external statements, not understanding the difference between the, the, the position of enunciation and the enunciated content. I mean, I think right there, we, that's a good impetus for the audience to understand the importance of Hegel in that it sort of encapsulates a importance of philosophy in general, which is figuring out how to think, not what to think, but it's how to literally think. Um, because, you know, this is the problem with, with politics, and I can't. this is very hard to get across in videos, which are sort of a mass format. Uh, videos is, is by nature going to be more simplified narrative depictions of reality, but sort of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is just explore ideas and also just, you know, generally have it for truth seekers who want to be able to give, give sort of tools to actually think. Because the issue with this is people who come into understanding problems about the world, I notice, is sort of you feel pressure to fit into some camp, a particular you know, are you a Marxist-Leninist? Are you a Maoist? Are you an anarchist? Are you whatever? But it's and it's ultimately maybe to relate that to the evolution of Hegel's consciousness and reason is is that not just being stuck at the level of under of of perception and understanding? So the, there's perception you 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 have you have experience in perception. You try to identify the particulars, then understanding you try to understand it in its totality. But it's there's no self-consciousness to really recognize the contradiction with that totality. Does that make any sense? And I don't know if you, I would, I actually would like you to, maybe we can 360 back to the trajectory of reason for Hegel. Literally the problem between consciousness and self-consciousness is a self-understanding or an understanding of your understanding. So when you're in consciousness, you might understand something and you might understand something in such a way as that you're trying to fit within a certain camp or a certain political identity to think with this group or to think with that group. But the problem with this type of understanding is that it doesn't have a self-understanding. In other words, it doesn't understand its understanding. And I think the difference between what you were saying I think is so, so important is the difference not what to think but how to think is in this gap between understanding and self-understanding. It's like, you can have a certain understanding, which is a certain fixed category of knowledge. But to have a self-understanding is sort of to have a perspective on that understanding and to situate that understanding within a sort of more, in a more dialectical sense. Which makes the categories more fluid, more flexible, and can create a distance between you and the categories, which is that they're not you. Again, this split. The position of your, the position of you as a subject of the unconscious, and sort of, again, the subject of the statement, or the categories or the ideas. There's a, a split there. Yeah, with uh, the, so self consciousness is that meta understanding, of understanding your own understanding, 
which understanding is after like perception. Um, you, when you just perceive these things and then you try to rationalize it, uh, does ideology kind of keep us just in the realm of understanding while blockading self-consciousness? Is think, that sort of what ideology does? I think that ideology does that, but to make it, say, a Zizekian under a Zizekian theory of ideology, it would be that that understanding is libidinally charged, meaning that we enjoy, uh, mm. we enjoy our ideology. Like to give the way Zizek would always say, like we enjoy, we like in other words, you have a fixed understanding. You don't have a self understanding of that understanding. All you have is a repetitive enjoyment of that form of understanding. And to go from an enjoyment of an unreflective understanding to a reflexive understanding of that understanding is painful. It's not enjoyable it's not or it's not it's not it's it's going beyond the pleasure principle and that's in some sense what the phenomenology of spirit is in in psychoanalytic terms is a constant going beyond the pleasure principle it's a constant encounter with the negativity of pleasure right so you have so in the consciousness chapter you go from sense perception to understanding and then you reach the limit of understanding which is precisely what we've been talking about with this lack of self-reflectivity and at a certain point, this lack of self-reflexivity becomes too negative. You can't ignore it anymore. You have to get a self-understanding of your understanding. Right? And, mm -hmm. the, and, and with all of these things, it's, it's how do I re libidinally recharge this? Like, how do I enjoy this beyond this negativity? In other words, how do I positivize this negativity? And that's, in some sense, sublation. That's that's a perfect segue because that's a big concept. Some people have named their entire channels off of this word. Um, what does sublation mean? And uh, in in as simple terms as you can uh, explain it in, in relation to his other ideas. Sublation is is really the the mechanism in terms of how Hegel's thought works. It's constantly it's constantly the driving force in terms of him explaining sort of the movement of, of both spirit in the phenomenology of spirit, but also logic and the science of logic. Sublation is a contradiction. It's a concept. It's the, contra the concept itself is a contradiction between two different things, between keeping and preserving and canceling or causing to end. So preserving on the one hand and ending on the other. So let me give that example with what we were just talking about with consciousness and understanding and self-understanding. So with the understanding, which is unself-reflexive, at a certain negativity, you have to put it to an end. But you have to preserve it at a higher level, right? So you have a self-understanding. So you have a, it's not like you're just getting rid of understanding, right? So on the one hand, you are getting rid of understanding. <laughs> But on the other hand, you're preserving understanding on a higher order, which is the self-understanding. So all of Hegel's concepts kind of work like this, which is the unity of preserving something while putting it to an end at the same time. Let me give another example. And maybe you could relate to it in the same sense with building one dime. In building Philosophy Portal, I constantly have to put things I'm doing to an end. Right? I try a project, it doesn't work out. Or I try a project and it works, but only to a certain point, right? So 
at a certain point, I have to put a project to an end, but then to keep it going, I have to lift up a new project to a higher order, which in some sense complements what the previous project was lacking. Now, the highest order sublation would be, I have to scrap philosophy portal altogether. Right? I have to put philosophy portal itself to an end, but to sublate philosophy portal would be to create something beyond philosophy portal, which in some sense was speaking to the lack in philosophy portal itself. Now, this could even happen to your identity as an individual. Like at a certain moment when I became a philosopher, I was putting an end to my identity as an, as an athlete. I was an, I was an, pardon me, I was an athlete. I reached a limit to that identity. I had to put it to an end. But my academic identity is a sublation of that because I preserve all of the all of the hard work that went into becoming an athlete. All of the hard work and the mindset and the repetitions that were I was putting into becoming an athlete, I just transitioned it into becoming an academic. So it's a sublation of that identity. The, the important point of sublation is that you don't fall into a na naive idea of a unified identity. And at the same time, you don't become nihilistic. Right, Because it can be nihilistic to think, oh, I'm going to have to, like, why would I do philosophy portal if I'm going to have to put it to an end? Right? Or why did I even try to become an athlete if it didn't work? The point of sublation is, is that, no, that process was the thing. The process of everything that you are putting into becoming an athlete, everything that you are putting into philosophy portal, all of that can be preserved at a higher level. So I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, my attempt. There. So I'm trying, if I were to maybe paraphrase what you were saying, and you can correct if it's the correct understanding of it. Um, the way I, I get this is sort of you know, dealing with contradiction, trying to work through contradiction, and you preserve elements while discarding others. And I don't, I'm tempted to say, you know, take the good, leave the bad, but that sounds like an uncontradictory way to look at it. It's not so much leave the bad, but it's more like incorporating aspects of that contradiction rather than discarding it. I, the way I kind of view this in terms of like, let's say if we were to apply this to at the level of history, when it comes to stages of socialism, communism, et cetera, is one can't really simply just, you know, abolish capitalism uh, overnight. You kind of have to inevitably incorporate what was actually good about capitalism into socialism into the next stage you can't just like, discard it and completely start anew the new will make have birthmarks of the old and it's a matter of preserving the new i guess and uh we can look at that on a personal level perhaps because there is this phenomenon right where people completely 360 and change their identities they go from one political ideology to the next and they hate everything about their old ideology. They'll refuse to identify with, identify with it. Um, I, this phenomenon I've noticed where sometimes people who are like communists when they're young or, or, or something, they become like hardcore neocons when they're old. And there's a, there's a feeling that, oh, I don't want to identify with that. I, I, when I think about that old thing, it reminds me of my old self. I don't want to think about that. And wouldn't that, so would that be the opposite of sublation? Yes, it would. 
So like that, that's probably the other, the other, that's what I mean by the unified, you, you, uh, with sublation, you avoid the trap of the unified identity is you avoid the trap coming an ideologue in this very simplistic sense of just, again, it's just an understanding which doesn't have a self-understanding because they're just, they don't want to think that. <laughs> it's too painful to, 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 to think that. But I just want to say quickly, the example you were giving about capitalism <clears throat> is a precise example. Of course, Marx comes out of Hegel, like you've already stated, is that, and I think this is something like that I'm more and more trying to be a committed leftist, trying to be not a simplistic anti-capitalist in the sense of philosophy portals a business and I'm trying to build a business and I want to learn what it's like to build a business and the negativities of building a business, right? Because then I can actually critique it. Then I can actually build a business which I understand how capitalism has to be integrated in order to go to something more socialistic or something more communistic. If you just have an undialectical communism, that's, it's, it's super regressive, super regressive. And when the left becomes anti-capitalist in a simple, simple way without actually, the thing is with the left with anti-capitalism is that not hardly any leftists understand capitalism deeply in the sense of a lived experience. They know what it's like to be a wage laborer, but they don't really know economics deeply. Hmm. Right. And, the thing is, is that we have to, in some sense, view this as like in the same way that I was sense viewing phenomenology of spirit like a fractal of these layers, which repeat with every individual being born. We have to understand world history, absolute spirit like that in regards to primitive communism, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and world communism. And if we don't understand like that, then what, I like what Yanis Varoufakis is saying about contemporary global capitalism is that we find ourselves in techno-feudalism, which is to say, if we don't have a capital, if we don't have an understanding of global capitalism, and if we don't have the capacity to socialistically regulate global capitalism, then what happens is that capitalism regresses to global feudalism. Hmm. It regresses. And then what happens? We're at threat of global slavery. And like figures like Andrew Tate and stuff like that, I think are just symptoms of this, right? Of, of basically just saying, you're just slaves under my boot if, unless you join my university, right? <laughs> or you are a slave, join my university. And that's the only way you can get out of the matrix. And, but the thing is, is with feudalism, Amazon, Facebook, YouTube, all of these platforms are feudalistic in the way they run. Right. So we have to think in terms of sublation, which basically means we have to think a lot and deeply, which is very difficult to do. And that's why Zizek always says, maybe the time now is not to act, but to think. So this is something I want to pick your brain about that is directly related to this. And so well, related to this, I found... Lenin quite interesting in this regard because he, the, one of the first things he implements after the Civil War is capitalism, state capitalism. And he, he has a lot of capitalists who come visit Russia for investment. And he's fascinated. He thinks that th these are the, the real, this, this is the stage before socialism. This is what we need to learn from how to you know, build companies because like, they're creating the infrastructure for this sort of uh, this futuristic project. Um, but now I contrast that with... Uh, Mao Zedong, because I found what is a big paradox in Mao Zedong is the fact that he seems to have a 
better grasp of dialectics compared to the likes of Stalin, who sees overcoming contradiction, overcoming uh, synthesis, whereas Maoid, there's always new contradictions. But what I find weird is Mao is, of course, proponent of the four olds, you know, removing the old cultures, old ideas. And, you know, he has a very anti-bourgeois view. And of course, the Maoists, they talk about the negation of the negation. Now, I'm kind of, I wonder if the fact that they have this view of just removing the old and with before, you know, rather than preserving what's in the old for the new, despite having a dialectical framework, I wonder if that has to do with their misunderstanding of sublation and negation and these concepts, because they use terms like negation of the negation. But when I hear them use it, I'm not sure if they're really talking about the same thing and with, compared to the likes of uh, how Slavoj or, or, or you talk about it. Well, I, I really like what you're saying about Lenin being fascinated by the capitalist investment, because a lot of the conversations that I'm having and a lot of things I'm thinking about is that we really, really need to think about investment and how investment works. And we, and we do need to think about how companies work and how corporate structures work and small bit. We need to understand companies. We need to understand investment. And we need to understand the relationship between a potential new paradigm that has a sublation of capitalism for socialism, which includes businesses and investment strategies and all of these different, different, different pathways. Because I do think the infrastructure for a future project can only come in that direction. And if we don't think like that, I think we're, we're doomed. But in terms of what I can't speak on the distinctions between Stalin and Mao because I don't know enough. But in terms of the idea of just removing the old for the new is a deeply undialectical idea. I think when it comes, and like in that sense, when it comes to thinking about communism globally, I think that we have to have a multi-local idea of communism that is respectful of, of, of local cultures and local traditions and local ideas and, and, and traditional ideas, right? Tr like you can't just get rid of all the traditional ideas, right? That, that in some sense, that's, 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 it's not, it's not working with the truth of world history. Sorry? Capitalism does that more than anything. Capitalism get does that more tradition. than anything. But I think that's, yeah. but I think that's also an undialectical notion of capitalism because capitalism is unregulated, right? Where capitalism just becomes capitalism when capitalism is just a global unregulated force then it can just destroy everything and everything of the old well that's that's yeah zizek in defense of lost causes was saying that's why china is bringing back sort of confucianism to regulate the excesses of capitalism because they, they're already seeing how much it destratify how, how much it just destabilizes society like a lot of old structures and i think what's happening in the i would like speculate here if Zizek's saying that about Confucianism in China, I see in the West right now a type of weird revival of Christianity in some sense. And it could be for similar reasons. That it gives some sort of stability, it gives some sort of structure in a, in a world that's otherwise very individualistic and without history, ahistorical. Now... I would like to ask the because you're talking about sublation, and I'm curious about its relation with spirit. Because, of course, in, in one of the many descriptions of spirit is 
at one point, I, and I'm thinking of that Hegel quotation that Young Han brought up about the uh, spirit in, involves sort of being in a, being in oneself in the other without sort of being uh, absorbed by the other. He doesn't use the word absorb, but if, if you get what I mean, sort of this ability to influence and uh, to kind of take aspects of the surroundings, but have it be more shaped by that spirit than the other way around. I wonder if sublation sort of requires that sort of strong, lack of a better term, spirit, because to, the ability to deal with these old contradictions uh, without adopting a sort of whole ideology to obfuscate them, dealing with these old contradictions and uh, to take aspects to, to preserve aspects while, you know, overcoming others. That wouldn't that require like a, a strong. It, it would require one to not be absorbed by this one's surroundings entirely. And I don't. I wonder if that has to do with spirit and, and whatnot. Because, and it, and it might seem a little alarming to some people who might think, oh wait, so people have different degrees of spirit. People can improve spirit or decrease spirit it seems like all hierarchical but I'm, I'm just curious how it how it all how these two things tie together uh, what first i want to ask mm -hmm. what do you mean by not being uh to not be absorbed by one's surroundings entirely um so it was the ability to be oneself in the other so almost as if one's will right is uh, the other one's will is almost being manifested in another person's will, um, but that person's will, the ego, is also influenced by the altar. But the altar is ultimately it is the altar who's having the ego speak through them, and uh, it, it's sort of that. I mean, it, it, we could relate to this master-slave dialectic, but um, what I sort mean is that. I mean, it just does seem like sublation requires a level of fortitude and self-consciousness that kind of relates to spirit. Because this, if one if one merely exists in the world and is just purely being shaped entirely by others without this sort of self-consciousness and ability to like it, they seem kind of related, if that makes sense. It's just yeah. pure speculation, but yeah, it might might be yeah, incoherent. It, it seems it seems like what you're talking about is kind of a master-slave dialectic in terms of being absorbed or absorbing someone else. I think there is a dialectic between the self and the other here, and and you have to be open to the other, but at the same time, you can't forget yourself. And so there is this, and remember I said about absolute knowing, absolute knowing is a becoming other. So there is a way in which the self is nothing but it's becoming other to itself. But at the same time, that's a dialectical process. So it's not just mm -hmm. a forgetting of yourself completely. You know, so, so in some sense, the mechanism of sublation to me allows to hold these opposites. Um, okay. But in terms of, you know, what we're talking about with, say, Confucianism or Christianity, it's like sort of being able, you know, with the old and the new, 
or just in general thinking about the old and the new, which doesn't have to be related to religion, is just thinking about, on the one hand, the extreme would be just completely identifying as a traditional reactionary. And then on the other hand, sort of being a postmodern relativist. Right? And somewhere in between there is where you'd find Hegel in the sense that Hegel's not an absolutist without history like a traditional reactionary, but Hegel's also not just a historicist without the absolute like a postmodern relativist. So that's why I like this notion, I guess I'd call it absolute historicism or historicism mm. of the absolute. It's, it's bringing together both of these, these, these dimensions. I mean, I, I would actually, yeah, I would like you to elaborate a bit on, because we talked a lot about absolute knowing and absolute knowledge. Well, first, I mean, does retroactively, this might make previous parts make sense for the audience as well as myself even more, uh, because I'm still, what is the absolute for Hegel? Like just the word absolute, what does he mean? Because that is, of course, pretty integral to the idea of absolute knowledge, no? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, ab absolute knowledge. Zizek uses this a lot, the fragile absolute. Fragile absolute, right. I mean, it's hard to talk about these things, right? But like on, on, on like, ab absolute knowing is like I've defined it as, to me, absolute knowing is just this process of becoming other to oneself. Now, absolute, absolute spirit, as we've been talking about it throughout this, is, is kind, to me, is, 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 is the totality of spirit as it is in its becoming other, inclusive of all its contradictions, antagonisms, and so forth. But the, th the absolute is, in some sense, it's, it's, it's beyond, it's, it's, in that sense, it's beyond, it's beyond description in the sense of it's beyond the way Christians describe it, or it's beyond the way Islamists describe it, or it's beyond the way communists describe it. It's beyond the way in which any political or theological ideology des describes it. it. It's the absolute is the contradiction between these conceptual schemas. It's the conflict between these conceptual schemas. It's, it's the tensions of the concept itself. Well, it, it is the, con or another way to say it, it is the concept in tension. The concept in becoming. Or I was describing it, I was describing it earlier with the paradox of all of these properties of God, right? Like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, all of these things in their contradiction. I would say is the absolute. So, like, for example, when Zizek uses a concept like absolute recoil, it's kind of like an I think also in Hegel's The Science of Logic, basically you get this idea of like this one in a one in a sort of self-repelling, one that's constantly self-repelling itself into two. Right? So it's constantly generating new contradictions, constantly generating new 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 divisions. Not sure. So is is, that orient is the absolute is the absolute like, for example, the absolute idea the contradictory totality? I would say. Okay. And that, that does raise an important thing because that is sort of a key dividing line between how people interpret Hegel, no? Because a lot of people reject Hegel based on this idea that he is a thinker of totality, right? 
That's why Nietzsche and Deleuze kind of reject, from what I understand, Hegel because he's they think of him as like this thinker of totality versus thinkers of difference, but so like Hegel is that would that Hegel literally Hegel's said philosophy already incorporate difference by being a philosopher of contradiction. Just like literally, he says, I, I got this quote just for this podcast, and I'm glad that you brought this up in regards to Deleuze. Hegel literally says the most reflective form of the absolute is the identity of identity and non-identity or the identity of identity and difference. So he literally says the absolute, and that, that's what I mean by the becoming other. And that's what I mean by the, the self and other as a dialectic. Yourself is an identity that's becoming other, meaning it's, it's the identity of identity and non-identity, or the identity of identity and difference. And so when Deleuze, the way Deleuzeans talk about difference and, and develop their relationship to Hegel, to me, they, they fall into this unrelatable difference. This difference without relation or possibility of relation in terms of their identity. And even to the point where they become animal. Well, this is why I'm fascinated and very digging deep into Hegel because I notice a thing in common with all of the thinkers that I gravitate to. Like, really, when it comes to... Uh, really, the, like, people in the contemporary space, people, people at Theory Underground, Zizek, and uh, even there's thinkers like Marcuse who are who are Hegelian Marxists who who actually are, are early big critics of identity politics, despite you know their sort of retroactive misunderstanding today. Uh, I noticed that what they all have in common is that there's a this Hegelian foundation that kind of uh, and they also tend to reject certain forms of like identity politics and uh, politics that. You know, I, I don't think work that aren't really desirable. And uh, I wonder if that, that Hegelianism is sort of, you know, like part of the, these philosophical foundations are sort of what kind of are stems, for lack of a better term, of these dividing lines. Because I noticed the Deleuzeans who tend to be on the more anarchistic side tend to also paradoxically be f proponents of like more like things like cancel culture or for lack of a better term, uh, sort of. Um, dog, uh, removing for what are actually exclusive politics, despite being for inclusion inclusion of difference, they tend to have like a sort of negative politics as opposed to the Hegelians. I know it tends to be more proponents of universality, but at the same time, non-identity, not homogeneity. You know what I'm talking about. There's a sort of yep. divide within the theory left, and I wonder if it has to do with these foundations. I think absolutely. So like, and to me, this is the central thing to me, to me, the central thing in, 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 in the leftist theory is this sort of conflict between the Hegelian foundations and Deleuze, Deleuzeans without Hegelian foundations. And here with Deleuze is like, it's basically like Deleuze literally said, I'm trying to think as if Hegel didn't exist. Right, like he's trying to develop a, a philosophy as if Hegel didn't exist, as opposed to using the Hegelian method. This is, and this is the thing with the thing with post-Hegelian philosophy is that people think they can't escape Hegel. Like I have to use Hegel to escape Hegel, right? Like so, like like it, it, like if you like if Deleuzeans, for example, would try to sublate Hegel, you're using Hegel's own methods, sublation. 
right? Like, can can we cancel Hegel while lifting him to a higher level? Well, that's using Hegel's method, right? Look at, right. So, so there's where the the paradox there comes in. But to me, with the the Deleuzean anarchist side you're speaking to, what I've seen is that you have a philosophy of difference, which leads to spurious differences, which then lead us to contradictions of identity, identity politics, right? Like, so you have politics of identity emerging within philosophies of extreme difference. And the problem is with these philosophies of extreme difference is that they can't, they're differences which can't relate. There's no, there's no possibility for relating between differences. And so then you have a politics of basically individuation without relation. And I think that that's, in, in some sense, that's the perfect philosophy for neoliberalism. Like if you wanted to develop... Well, yeah, I found it. Zizek has many times said Deleuze is the... Deleuze is the perfect philosopher for neoliberalism. Of neoliberalism. Right. Deleuze is the perfect philosopher for neoliberalism. Like, and that's why Deleuzeanism is supported within neoliberal universities. But the, the, the point here, in like, there is the possibility to have a Hegel-Deleuze sublation. Like, I don't think we should just throw out Deleuze. But I, I don't think we should just throw out Hegel. There has to be a relation between the two. Because the, in some sense, Deleuze is speaking to something real on regards to, we do need to think difference beyond Hegel. But at the same time, you can't just throw out all of the dialectical machinery and all of sort of the foundations that Hegel lay, laid, which was in some sense necessary to understand the development of spirit and the development of logic. You have to understand the development of spirit, how, like, basically the conditions of possibility of a philosopher, because how are you going to teach the next generation of philosophers unless you understand what are the conditions of possibility for a philosopher? So you need Hegel for that. And I think also Hegel's logic is absolutely still applicable and necessary for modern society today in regards to thinking being and nothing and thinking about a form of becoming which contains being and nothing, which we don't need to get into the science of logic, but that's the science of logic. If, and the thing is, is that with Deleuze, you have a form of becoming, which I think, I, with Deleuze, I fear, you have a form of becoming which does not contain being and nothing. In other words, you have a form of becoming which doesn't have sort of a, a close contact with negativity, death, limitation. That's what I fear. But the point here is what does this lead to politically? It, to me, what I see politically is you have a spurious infinity of differences of identity which can't relate to each other, and there's no possibility for democracy, and there's no possibility for sublation to a higher, higher social order. And that's, to me, what our situation is. And then, as a consequence of that, we, I think we risk regression into feudal, feudal conditions. And I think it's really dire. I think it's really dark. I think we're, we're really heading into, 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 into a socioeconomic order where, 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 where there's no up, where there's no out, where there's no emancipatory possibility. That's, this is just a fascinating whole topic of discussion. I mean, it's sort of what this concern sort of unites a lot of the thinkers that I'm all interested in. I mean, I don't, I don't want to really go, go off track here within 
Sheldon Wallen, one of my favorite political theorists, the philosopher of the theorist of inverted totalitarianism is one of those key characteristics is that the inverted totalitarianism isn't characterized by by homogeneity. It's characterized by a sort of spurious differences. And uh, he's writing that in the 90s, which I found uh, quite quite interesting uh, uh, with regard to that observation. It's a brilliant concept and, and absolutely accurate. And uh, so the, but what I, what, here's what I find interesting. So last week, I had a Bajuian on, and I find my uh, mentor, who uh, was my biggest intellectual mentor at grad school, is a Bajuian of sorts. And what I found find interesting about the whole that camp, the Bajuians, is that they sort of also agree with what you're saying there about the spurious differences and the need for universality, and and there, but there's sort of like this midpoint between, I guess you could say Zizekian, Lacanian, Hegelians, uh, for lack of a better generalization, and then Deleuzean, Foucauldians on this other side. But what they tend to always, what I find weird is that they also tend to reject Hegel, and not totally, but they tend to. But I find the re the reason that they usually posit for disregarding Hegel is, or not, or not so much disregarding, but not being Hegelians, is that they think his philosophy of history is deterministic, and that the, his philosophy of history leaves no room for agency. That kind of, I I don't know if what you think about that, and if that is like a correct, a fair criticism of Hegel's view of history, or if it's a misinterpretation. I think. The determinism in Hegel is is a, a, is that it's to me how I understand Hegel. Let me situate the determinism. You have Newtonian Newtonian mechanics, which are deterministic mechanics. Newtonian mechanics deterministic, universe is deterministic, but Newtonian mechanics are substance without subject. They don't speak to the subject. Hegel is trying to think about the position of the subject within a modern Newtonian universe. And so he makes substance with subject. And what happens is, is you get the, po the possibility for the subject to determine their own concept. So this could be situated maybe in Bedouian terms with his truth procedures. Art... What are the true procedures? Art. It's art, science, love, and politics. Right. Art, science, love, yeah. politics. Let's and love is the fourth weird one. So you have art, science, politics, let's say, as as Badu's absolute spirit. Say they're all love or something. That you can determine your concept artistically, philosophically, scientifically. But that does not mean that your concept eliminates indeterminacy. There's always going to be a dialectics between the determination of your concept and the indeterminacy of the real. If I could say it like that. Like for like the example I was giving with philosophy portal, like I can I can choose to determine my notion as philosophy portal, but that does not create a deterministic universe. It just throws me into new situations of indeterminist in, in throws me into new situations of indeterminism. I can't predict everything. I can't I can't know everything. I can't even predict the consequences of my own I can't predict the consequences of my own determined notion. If that makes sense. So to me, and again, with absolute knowing being this becoming other, 
is like, let's think about this in regards to, let's say, global ecology. The future of the planet with global warming. There's nothing deterministic about this. We don't know what the future of global ecology will be. And climate scientists, ecologists, they can't predict what climate catastrophe will happen two years from now. It's indeterministic. It's a complex system, which is, has wildly chaotic. I was just listening today. We don't have the mass to understand complexity and chaos. So it, it, it's an indeterministic system. But the, the point is more to be a Hegelian is to have a standpoint of knowing which allows you to face the uncertainty or go into the uncertainty, to go into, to think with the uncertainty, to think with the otherness. Right. And to think with the and to think with the otherness and the indeterminacy in a genuine way, not in an ideological way, like can happen in certain activist sort of determinations. Right. Like where where they where they know for sure what will happen in 2050. No, you don't know for sure what will happen in 2050. No one knows what's going to happen for sure in 2050. Whether and whether you're pro whether you think global warming's happening, whether you don't think global warming's happening, whatever your ideological position is. Nobody knows what's going to happen in 2050. What we can say are there's probabilities, but there's a going into the... We're, we're going into... All we can do, if we're honest, is to have real discourses where differences relate to each other that are honestly going into the world becoming other to itself. That's the way I understand I mean, it. so you actually perfectly segue to my final, final question. And that is, at the heart of my one of my biggest interests, which will be a long time interest for a while. It's a, and that is that yeah, relation between religion, politics, and ideology, or if, if one separates religion and ideology, I, I personally think that all ideo all religions, ideology, but not all ideologies, religion. But so this is what I want to ask. So if this trajectory of reason, this sort of high project of the enlightenment that Hegel is concerned with, with self-consciousness, and striving towards absolute knowing. At the same time, you, you're mentioning that activist circles are, are always plagued by ideology. I mean, and of course, religion is a major thing for Hegel and that it's something you can't really bypass but go through. I mean, to what extent, though, uh, that we'll never really be able to overcome religion and ideology, these things that sort of uh, we adopt to kind of rationalize the chaos of reality as opposed to thinking through contradiction and the chaos. And maybe the ability to transcend that will only be restricted to a very small amount of, amount of people. I mean, that kind of creates a huge dilemma politically, doesn't it? I mean, because if this is Hegel's project, Zizek has also said, right, we can't... It, Escape, you can't really fully escape ideology. It's a matter of this, this being like aware of it, I guess. But not even that. It's more than there's enjoyment. more. There's more than yeah. There's an enjoyment in it, right? So I mean, this is just what. What is your take on this whole this dilemma? Because yeah. this is to me a, a fascinating question. Yeah, well, you and me, but it's it's a fascinating dilemma. And again, sort of. The performative contradiction of all of this is, of course, there is no big other. So just like everyone, I mean, I'm in this. 
that's the thing to me. That's the ultimate point of of studying, learning. Hey, we're all in this. We're all in this together. No one, no one occupies the position of knowing everything. Right? We're all in this together. I like this distinction between all religion is ideology, but not all ideology is religion. Certainly. And that's the thing is that with the historical relativist position in postmodernism is there's this idea that we can get out of ideology, that, that we could, we're in a post-ideological society. And I think this is where Zizek comes as the philosopher of the moment, saying, no, 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 that's too quick. And that's why he developed the theory of ideology. Is to say the way we think about ideology has to be thought within the contours of libidinal economy. And the way we enjoy our ideology. I, I think that's 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 really important. Now, I think the crucial thing is I do think we have to reconcile ourselves with the idea that we don't we're probably not going to, and we probably don't need to overcome religion. We're probably going to have to need, I'm, I'm not saying, <clears throat> like to me, if people need religion, or if people, to me, it's, it, it's fine. As long, as, long as, as long as we maintain the sublation of modernity, which is that religion does not have theocrat, that we don't dissolve to a theocracy. That would be the problem. Like, as long as religion has whatever its space to do, people can do their rituals, communal gatherings, the problem would be a regression to theocracy. That would be the breakdown to avoid, right? Like, we want to maintain the split between church and state, basically. Right? We, want to, we want to maintain mm. what was built in modernity, and we want to maintain mm. modern political progress. And to me, the stakes here are related to Everything we achieved with an individual rights, feminism, civil rights, of course, being the two biggest, but there are more just rights, the rights movement in general of modern progress. We want to keep all of that, and a theocracy would destroy all of that. So on that level, but the, the real problem, the real, like, and people say, like, well, what's the real is there really a way to think beyond Hegel's project? Well, I think you sort of named it, is that the ability to transcend in the way that we're thinking, like on the level of an absolute knowing, is restricted to a small number of people at any given time. It's available to all, but realistically, it's only possible for a small number of people. And I would say that we have to think the political economy of what could help make this possible as well. Mm -hmm. Because I do think the political economic situation could change and expand the number of people this is open to. 100%, yeah. Marx's project in the manuscripts where he lays out. I think, I think we have to think more complex about Hegel and Marx. We can't just think about Hegel and Marx and just, oh, it's Hegel or it's Marx. We have to think them together. Because Marx was Marx is Marx is a correct symptom of Hegel in the sense of Hegel did not think through political economy in the way Marx did. And Hegel could not have known capitalism in the way that Marx knew capitalism. And Marx could not know, know capitalism in the way that we could potentially know capitalism. The thing with Hegel, the Hegel's limit is Hegel is a historical limited being. We're alive today. 
There are things active today that we have to think today, which, of course, Hegel knew nothing about, right? And to hear, and here, that's why my PhD, like, so go, let, let me just, like, bring that full, full circle in terms of, well, I'm a Hegelian, but this is the thing. My actual own publications are about global brain singularity. I'm writing about the singularity. I'm writing about technological singularity because that's actual to my reality. That's actual to the 21st century. That's not actual to Hegel. Right. And so, like, for example, Zizek would write a book like Hegel and the Wired Brain. Right. Which is thinking mm -hmm. about. Yeah, it's exactly what I thought of. Right. When you brought that up. Right. But so but that's where the point is, is to think the real absolute contradictions of today. Like, for example, the contradictions between. Mind and body with a wired brain. For example. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, realistically speaking, if the phenomenology of spirit is a correct description of the unfolding of spirit, again, from an embryo to an adult. All such processes are going to involve going through consciousness, self-consciousness, reason, spirit, religion, and absolute knowing. And the question is only, does the subject die before they reach absolute knowing, or do they reach absolute knowing before they die? And the the and then basically then the other other thing to think is what stops a subject from reaching absolute knowing before they die can be analyzed with the structure of the phenomenology of spirit. Like for example, in religion, it's that you're not willing to let go of the ideology of the community and the enjoyment that it provides. If you if if you would rather die than go beyond your religious community and the enjoyment it brings or the way you are enjoying your ideology of that religion, then you're just going to die before you reach absolute knowing. And that's fine. You can just keep enjoying that. And, and like you're saying, all religion is ideology, but not all ideology is religion. That goes for the same for other ideologies. That's, that's a fascinating quilting point. Because we're, we said Hegel's like this high priest of modernism. I, f I find that it's, it's what I think of because he's really does represent kind of the Enlightenment project and a, and a continuation of it and a vast extension of it. Because there's a lot of people who elaborate on these problems, but kind of there's no way beyond the, this sort of ideologies, rituals, and the enjoyment of repetition. Because in Bataille, right, he has theory of religion, which which I've been reading, is very fascinating. But it's also with with Bataille, you get a sense that this is just human nature, and there's there's, there's no way beyond this. With Hegel, there's kind of a a forwardness of history, not necessarily an inevitability, but a but a forwardness nonetheless that uh, that I think is quite interesting. So yeah, I mean, I we we could talk for hours about all this stuff. Like there's there's tons of things I, I I'd love to ask you, but of course, uh, yeah, I've I'm uh, grateful that you've uh, been on for as, as long as you have, and we've covered a lot. And those who have enjoyed, ha have listened to all this conversation so far, have managed to get through it, have uh, I'm sure are abs absolutely truth seekers. And uh, <laughs> I, I congratulate you. <laughs> so yeah, without uh, without further ado, thank you, Cadell, for uh, for being on. A great pleasure, and I encourage those who 
our truth seekers to check out Philosophy Portal. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to find my work, just philosophyportal.online, also the channel, uh, Philosophy Portal. Really appreciate your questions and uh, yeah, hope the conversation can continue in the future. Fantastic. My only hope is that when enough people become pessimist, then out of despair, somebody maybe does something. But you know why I also like to be a pessimist? Because it's the only way to have a nice life. If you are an optimist, then always bad things happen and you are always uh, disappointed. When you are a pessimist, then you look around, okay, there are bad, but from time to time something nice happens and you are, as a pessimist, you are a little bit glad all the time, no? You are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content.